Welcome to Art of the Conversation with J.A. LaRock. You can find this podcast on Himalaya, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. We're beginning our author series where we speak with writers not just on their upcoming books, but also on the craft and how it can be just so difficult to get something not only published, but to get other people to read it. We're joined by K.A. Grant, author of the Order of the Slayer series. And we began by asking her, what was her inspiration to start the writing process? Well, I've always been a lover of stories since I was a kid. My nose was in a book from the time I learned to read. I think I was five when I first learned how to read. And it was, you know, the cat jumped over the moon. But from that point, I was like, oh, I like this. And I just grew up with my nose in a book, loving a good story. And then when I transitioned into being in college, I still didn't want to be a writer, but I was pursuing professional writing as a bachelor's degree. And I fell in love with screenwriting first because it was quicker because I felt like I don't have the patience to write a novel. And I wrote 10 screenplays over the years. Now, this is a 10-year period, so senior year, senior year of college and nine years of screenwriting. Kept trying to get an agent, couldn't get an agent. And then I wrote a couple short stories, short films, got them produced, and then realized I hate production because it's a lot of standing in the heat. <laughs> There's a lot of moving parts. And when, like, you're the producer slash director slash financier slash fill in the blank on a small production it is almost a nightmare if you don't know what you're doing and you don't have a good project manager that's gonna like put people to task and I was too nice um and I hated it and then I stopped writing and was like I'm never writing again because <laughs> I'm dramatic and I ended up helping one of the guys that I met he was an actor on one of my sets he was working on a television show. Really, it was a, a webisode. And I was helping him with that. And after helping him with that for some months, I was like, why am I writing someone else's stuff? I need to write my own thing. <laughs> so yeah. I thought about going back to screenwriting, right? And I still didn't do it. And I ended up dating this guy who went, who was in the military. And he went overseas to the Middle East and we were like eight hours apart in time difference or whatever. So I had a small window of time whenever I could talk to him. Of course, that put a strain on the relationship. And I realized I needed to do something with my time so that I wouldn't cheat, basically, to be honest. So <laughs> I said, well, let me see if I can uh, write a short story. And I wrote the short story. I tried to publish it. It didn't really work out. But then I decided to add to the short story. So then fast forward 10 books later, 10 full novels later, I'm like, ah, I guess I'm a novelist. I guess I could do this. So that was my journey. It was basically, it was meant to be for me to be a novelist. I just ran from it for so long. I ended up doing all these other things. And in between all of that, I was an entertainment reporter for a local newspaper here in South Florida for 11 years, just writing movie reviews, play reviews, interviewing celebrities. So writing was in my blood, I guess, and it's in my DNA. 
can. I can't help it. So, yeah, I mean, if you can eat, sleep, breathe, writing, you knock it out of the park. If you don't do all of that and you just like a good story, I say write what you love and then go from there. Yeah, I think that what ends up happening with a lot of people in the very beginning uh, is either they'll, if they are in some type of school, whether it's college or writing class, or even if they go online, they'll see all these people who almost seem to put a downer on the beginning writer, the new the new writer. And the same thing happens in film. And I know you know this from your experience where everyone almost seems like they want to talk down the new person because there's supposed to be like this example of the new uh-huh. person who thinks they're better than they are. Like uh-huh. I noticed that in film school as well where they'd be like, oh, well, you know, some a first time director always thinks their their movie is great, but it's always trash. Or they'll say yes. the first screenplay you write or the first short story you write is trash. And yes. I never believe that. I honestly always believe that you can write something well. Doesn't mean it's not polished. It could it still needs to be polished. But I don't right. think it's trash. Did you have those, I guess, naysayers kind of maybe slowing you down where it's like, oh, am I really good? There's so many books out there. There's so many people that write do I almost deserve to write my own novel? I did. And that naysayer was me. <laughs> I was the naysayer. <laughs> I was like, I don't have the patience. I remember my mom telling me, you should be writing novels. People prophesied to me from church. novels. I said, ah, they got me confused with Karen, my sister. And my mom kept pushing me. Other people, I think you guys even were telling me. My mentor, who is a literary agent she was telling me i should be writing novels if i want to break into filmmaking because a lot of films were coming from books and i said i don't have the patience for that and i dismissed it so lo and behold i the last four screenplays i wrote was a series called the order of the slayers and that ended up being the book series that i created i basically took those four scripts and turned them well, three out of the four I've already turned into this 10-book saga already. So, yeah, but the naysayer was me. I kept, I read people's stuff, and I think, I'll never write as good as this. And I have had those internal conversations with myself all the way up until, like, a couple of months ago. And it wasn't until I published my first book, and then I had the book in my hand, and I started looking at it, and I'm reading it, reading what I wrote a couple of years ago, and I'm like, Oh, wait, I'm a good writer. What am I talking about? But it, I am my own worst critic. And I guess it's because of my critical background and just because it's just how I am. Yeah, and, and I think that that's always good to have a little bit of that critic in you. I mean, obviously, you don't want to think I'm the greatest writer ever. And then yeah. you just crank out something that is, is, is not good because then later on, You'll look at it, and especially if you put it out into the public space and it's not well-received, then that can hurt you as well. Um, but at the same time, you you just have to go for it. Um, but I know that even nowadays, even though there is, um, you know, publishing as far as the Internet, independent publishing, things like that, there's still people, especially people who are grew up fans of reading, I guess what you would call traditional novels, uh, wanting to go through the publishing houses. And that is such a crazy web to go through. It's like like a web plus a well. (laughs) A rabbit hole. 
Yeah. Um, can you <laughs> just tell us a little hole. bit about that? Like how your process of trying to go that route? Oh. Well, I w- it's a rabbit hole of rejection, I could say. And I know that sounds dismal, but it somewhat is because I, I have like all of my query letters that I saved over the years. I queried um, hundreds, and I always say hundreds, three, four hundred agencies and a handful of publishing companies. And I was sending them query letters for the first book, The Guardian. And I was sending them, I would join these, um, Twitter has these, uh, what do you call it? They have these contests where you upload a quick, you tweet, sorry, a quick thing, a quick blurb about your book, and then all of these agents look at the little tweet, and if they like it, they'll inbox you and request more pages. I did that. I did all of that. And I would say I got most rejections. A couple times, people asked for the first 30 pages, and after the first 30 pages, they would say, eh, I passed. So then I thought, well, at least I was good enough to get them interested to ask for the 30 pages and good enough for them to send me a rejection because some people weren't even getting rejection letters. I didn't get rejection letters from everybody. But just after so many rejections, and you have to imagine, this was years of rejections. I wrote The Guardian five, six years ago, and... I tried for three or four years to get an agent, and I got rejection. I tried entering contests, rejection. And it really boiled down to, can they market the book? And me, I'm good at writing it, but I'm not good at marketing it, which is why I think I need to go to school for marketing. But I learned that after a while, I need to figure out how to market my book to the right person. That still didn't work. <laughs> I mean, it didn't work. Um, part of it is I have characters that are people of color, but they're not struggling. And, you know, it's all a part of the market. The market wants people who are struggling and, you know, you're African-American and you're showing, like, you know, not to, not to say anything negative about the books that are out there, the really good books, like the hate you give that was about black struggle and she got a movie deal out of it and all of that i'm not downplaying any of that that is great but there's so many black writers out there that don't get the love we just don't so that's why i ended up self-publishing because i got to the point where i just had one rejection too many after a while and i just said screw it I got and you see that in film too, right? Where, like, I noticed uh, even in film school that sometimes you'd have stories where it's supposed to be rising up, which obviously, like you said, makes a great story, especially if it's based in truth. But right. it, it does seem that if you kind of almost go like a regular route, like if you're just, oh, I'm a sci-fi writer, but my characters right. are minorities or African American in this case, right. then all of a sudden, it, then it's like you're almost thrown in the same general pile as everyone else and you're like this is still a very special important story yes it's but you know what i have to say this early on when i first wrote the guardian some years ago there were not a lot of fantasy 
or sci-fi stories with blacks as the lead blacks or even latin as the lead i looked and i was like i'm in a genre almost all by myself i mean there were some but it wasn't a lot and you fast forward to right now if you go on amazon there are quite a few writers or stories i should say uh, fantasy stories sci-fi stories where the leads are black usually they're african descent people always tie in the whole being African thing to it and like the African roots and their spirituality and that's how they get their powers or their gifts or what have you. So things are changing. It's slow, but things are changing. And like, um, I think it was the CW. I was reading a story from Deadline that Regina Hall just optioned a story. I can't remember the name. She optioned a story with the CW to make it into a television series. And it's about a young African-American girl who has African roots can trace her African roots and she has gifts as like some kind of uh, demon slayer or something like that and what got my notice was it was similar to my series but the fact that we're gonna have someone basically leading a CW TV show CW is a major network at this point someone of color black leading now we do have the Batwoman series which Ruby Rose, they, she, I don't know if she got fired or she left or whatever, and the new Batwoman is going to be a black woman. So we're slowly integrating into the fantasy world because if you think about it, like Game of Thrones, juggernaut television series, you had maybe one or two black characters in that entire series. And we just, we weren't represented. And now we're starting to be kind of represented here. So I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm in a genre that's ahead of its time a little bit, I guess. You know, if you if you could say that. Oh yeah, I I would agree, and I think that even just uh, recently, uh, with the Black Lives Movement, um, I think that a lot of people see that it is important to not only showcase more African Americans, but there's a lot of, especially in animation, you know, they've shown that. You'd have even African American characters that weren't even voiced by African Americans, so it's like yeah. a whole shift to really try to empower people. But you're right; it seems though that a lot of stories still want to uh, talk about the struggle of that. Which I guess yeah. you know, if you think about it from a marketing standpoint alone, it makes sense. You think of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is about the struggle, and then you mm-hmm. want stories that match that. But I think it's 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 almost like you you need to be able to tell all sides to give it the nor- normalcy that people expect. Because if everything is a struggle, then a lot of people say, hey, you know what? I want to watch something that is just, you know, more fluff. And, you know, just because you may have struggled in your life and you come from a background of struggle doesn't mean that you can't r- write something that's, you know, fun and, and, and happy and just something you could just right. sit back and enjoy like candy. <laughs> right. That was that was my biggest issue, especially when I was starting out as a um as an entertainment reporter because I was writing for a black newspaper and a lot of the black films were these shoot 'em up boys in the hood, you know, minister society type films and and especially when I was in it just so happens as I broke in as an entertainment writer I also broke into the uh, black film 
scene. It's small, but it was a black film scene in South Florida, and it was all the same. Every new unknown filmmaker was trying to make these films about gangsters and the new black Scarface and all this other stuff. And I remember going, why is this the only genre that we have? Why can't we have other things? And people were like, but this is real. This is what people go through. I'm like, yeah, but not everybody wants to live it and then watch it on TV. That's the whole point of TV and movies and reading. You want to escape the world that you're in and you want to see something else. And I remember I got shot down a lot of times because I got to a point where I didn't even want to cover stories like that because I felt like this is what blacks wanted to see. This is what they said they wanted to see. But what they're not understanding is non-blacks, that's what they're seeing too. And if they're only seeing that, they're not seeing that every black person you meet is not a thug. We don't all own guns. We're not all trying to shoot and have drive-bys and things like that. We're not all gangsters trying to get out of the hood. You know, I had my issues when Power first came on because Power was basically that genre. It was a gangster trying to be legit. But the way they wrote it, it ended up being quite interesting, so I ended up getting into it. But power is like an anomaly. And even still, if you look at black literature through the library, through Amazon, if you look at it, a lot of it is the same thing. Boss, B-word. Trying to be the boss and, and have all of these things and, you know, this life of crime and they're glorifying this life of crime. So it's like, even though we're still having, we have come a long way in how we're being portrayed, we're still being portrayed struggling, gangsters, um, illiterate, quote unquote, sassy, which is how they describe black women a lot of times, all of those things. And I wanted to change that view. So that's why in my books, I don't really have characters that are black and black gang members. Now, I do have them, but it's just a small part of the story. Most of my main characters are affluent people. Middle class, upper class, people who come from money, people who come from wealth, people who maybe struggle but didn't decide to have a life of crime to survive, if that makes sense. Oh, yes, definitely. And I think that one of the hardest things to navigate, especially uh, if you're a minority uh, writer, is that sometimes you have to look out from attacks on both sides. Because on one hand, if you have a story that is just more mainstream, like let's say you just make a comic book character that has powers and he or she's African-American, but then you don't, but then maybe they grew up rich for some reason. You know, they were just rich. And right. then someone will say, well, why are they rich? How come you don't show them struggling? It's like, well, there are a lot of you know, black people who are rich, middle class. It's not like ev every one of us are poor. So it's like right. sometimes you'll have a tax even from one side almost giving you like a check to see, or oh, are you black enough? Is this story black enough? And it's and it, I understand yes. how hard it can be. Um, yes. I know you talked about making the switch over to self-publishing. Uh, can you tell me about like how how that went? How was it working with uh, Amazon to to get that done? Because I know that there's a lot of writers out there who they've probably said to themselves, you know what? I just want to get my work out there. Amazon looks good, 
but I'm still not sure about it. Can you tell us about that process? Well, I have my, I have mixed feelings about publishing with Amazon. So for my first book, I actually published a novella, a prequel to my series last year as like a test run. And I gave it a crap, it had a crappy cover. I had a, a little blurb about it. It sold a little bit from people who I know. You know, you post it on Facebook and family members want to help you out, so they click and they buy it. It was $3. Okay. So then when I published my first official novel in March, I thought, okay, I've learned things. But I, I still hadn't learned. <laughs> it wasn't until my second book that I really started to learn, like, oh, this is how you're supposed to do it. Self-publishing on Amazon is good because you are getting your name out there and you have a website where you can show your work but on the other side of that self-publishing is just that you yourself are the one doing all the marketing and marketing costs money if you don't have any money like i am balling on a budget right now so i don't have a whole much money i paid amazon to advertise and i gave it a small budget it they advertise it to thousands of people and it generated in a couple people buying it. The, the surge that I saw from my first book was when I had it for free. A whole bunch of people bought it. Hundreds of people bought it, but it was for free. Right. And I have to be honest, if you, you really have to be full-time with marketing, which I can't because I work full-time. I need money. If you don't have a whole bunch of money or, you know, you need to have, like, I would say a couple hundred dollars stashed away because you're the one paying for the marketing. My first book, what I did was I went on Fiverr. I paid for a cover. The guy used a copyrighted image. I didn't realize it until after I self-published and I freaked out. I said, ah, this is a copywritten image. I don't want this person coming back after me. So I asked the guy to change it and he gave me a hard time. Fiverr ended up. I contacted Fiverr about it. They gave me my money back, and then I worked with another person. So I got a book cover design. Okay, fine. Published the book, got it fixed, copywritten, everything's legit. Then I paid somebody for a review. I paid two people, actually, for a review. It wasn't a whole bunch of money. I also paid somebody to do a trailer for me. All good things, but I didn't have the followers so that when people saw it, it generated into a whole bunch of book sales. Now, my second book, I did almost the same thing. I used the same graphic designer for the cover, but I did a little different for the marketing. I paid, I went on Instagram and paid for marketing. So far, Instagram has charged me like $5, I think. They put it out there and it, you know, I had a trailer made for the second book. I used that for Instagram and it didn't really, it, it's been seen by people but it didn't generate into books the interesting thing is I started doing my own thing I started looking at how they market how publishers like Simon and Schuster and Penguin how do they market their books and they basically just take photos of their books and post it on their Instagram page so what I do is I had some family members they had the book I said can I use your picture yeah sure so I just started using their photos I would post some of the photos on Instagram and then hashtag everything that had book in it, book clubs, 
you know, all these different people, all these different uh, Instagram accounts that are followed by the big name publishers and stuff, I hashtag them in and I actually started getting clicks because of that. And I didn't even pay for that. That was free. It was just a matter of you have to sit there and put up a whole bunch of hashtags. But that ended up being better. Concerning Amazon, though, the Amazon, Amazon is really just there to put the book out there. But if you want good marketing, you're going to have to spend some money. And you're going to have to, if you use Amazon marketing, you're going to have to pay a lot of money. And I'm talking a couple hundred dollars. You can't $30 market that because it's just not going to work. So in self-publishing, I now realize the importance of publishing with an actual publisher because then they have the money to do what needs to be done and they can push push it to the right people. But really and truly, if I really think about it from a reporter aspect and standpoint, if you want your book to sell and do really, really well and make those thousands and hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars, your book has to be optioned by some kind of production company. Because right now there's a lot of, there's some books that have been optioned by Netflix and Amazon Studios and all these other places because they had the representation, they had an agent, they got film rights, and there it is. And so now the book is selling because there's upcoming TV shows and movies about it. But if you're somebody who just wants to start out, get your name out there so that you want the feel of your work finally being able to be read by people, then yeah, Amazon is a great place. I looked into other places like uh, lulu.com and some independent publishing places where you pay the money. And yeah, I'm balling on a budget, so I didn't have the money for that. So if you are short on cash, it is good because you don't have to pay Amazon to publish your book. They're going to take their fee from it it's kind of steep a little bit they're going to take their fee and then they're going to help you put it out there but if you want it for marketing don't bother i hope that that answers your question no it does because um there's a lot of people who have written something and you see the path of how they they went and and what came out and it's it's funny because there have been some authors who even said hey you know my first book that i wrote it really wasn't that well, but I was on Instagram or I was on Twitter or I was on Facebook from very early. I had a large following. So when I put it out there, they bought it. It's almost like, you know, what you said with friends and family. If you have that type of a social media presence where people will almost add to that friends and family list, then that can boost Mm -hmm. you up. Um, I saw that with the other Amazon, their TV uh, side, where you sub, uh, submit your ideas for a television show. at In the very beginning, this was probably about five, six years ago, they actually would look at your social media presence because they were hoping right. that if you were popular on social media, then that would all, already jumpstart your story, jumpstart your screenplay, and then eventually the show. And... I understand that in a sense, but I just think that with all the things that we've seen overall, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a good product because there's a lot of things that have a lot of followers or a lot of retweets or whatever, 
that isn't really that good. But I think that in the end, the lesson, like you said, is that you have to do everything yourself if you're if you're out there. Like if you're back in the day, if you were a writer, you wrote the book, you gave you you submitted it, and then your publishing company did the rest, and you just continued writing. But if you're going independent or self-publishing, you have to be everything, and it's almost yeah. a 24-hour job for. And you may end up with no money, which is another thing I want to ask yeah. you. Was there a point where you were trying to balance between I'm going to price this book to sell so that I get my name and get the, the story up since it's going to be a continuing long series? Or were you thinking I need to hedge it between get people to buy it, but actually try to make a little bit of profit? The second one, I was trying to make a little bit of profit with the first book and I sold the most when it was free <laughs> and I got the tip from you that if you put it up for free promotion Amazon is gonna market the heck out of it because it's free so that's how I got it done the first time now my second book what I did was Amazon has some kind of algorithm that tells you what price most self-published books sell and that price was like 287 or something so I put my put my second book is now 299 but my first book is more expensive the reason being is because you're gonna look and see it's the second book and you're gonna go maybe I should read the first book first so now you're going to public you're gonna sorry buy the first book which is double it's seven dollars you're gonna buy the first book and then you'll buy the second book so now I've just made what ten dollars technically $10 off of you, but really Amazon takes like almost more than half of that. So yeah, but still, I mean, if you self-publish and you think you're going to be making a whole bunch of money, you should get a real job first and then manage your expectations because self-publishing is really and truly, it's as somebody who believes in God, I would say it's up to God whether or not the book sells because it, you know, there's a lot of factors that go in to selling. You really just need like a Hail Mary or something for someone to just, a whole bunch of people to just spark and just say, oh, I, I want to read this book. And, you know, you think maybe if a couple people read it, the word of mouth will generate and it'll be great. It'll be big. This doesn't always happen self-publishing. If you're somebody who maybe doesn't believe in God, it's up to the fates then. It's literally up to fate because... At this point, with limited resources, I can only do so much. And and there's a lot out there. A lot of people have self-published these days. And honestly, not all of it is good. I've read books that were published by big name publishing companies. And I'm finding typos. And I'm like, the writing is meh. The story is good, but the writing is not that great. And these books are selling. And these people are making millions and millions of dollars. And then what I like to do, what I started doing, especially after I self-published, I decided I have a couple of authors that I like to read, like Sherilyn Kenyon and Robin Hobb. But most of the time when I'm reading a book, whether I'm checking it out from the library or I'm purchasing it, I always look for black writers. I look for the stories that have us in it with a supernatural appeal, whether it's sci-fi or fantasy and I've come to find that even 
some of it is a little raw, but the writing is there, and it's good writing. It's a good story. And I think all of us should try to support lesser-known writers because that's where you get the good stuff. Once you read the books like, you know, like a Gillian Flynn or something like that, yeah, the writing's good, the story's good, whatever, but that person has been edited and their stuff's been switched, changed, washed, whitewashed, whatever. And you're not getting that person's raw story. Whereas when you read a lesser known writer, this is this person's story. It may have been edited by a friend or something, but it's their story. It's not like, oh, you can't put this in here because our parent company is this one. So they're not going to appreciate a story about this and how you have to tweak your story so that we don't piss off our bosses. You know, it's none of that. This is just pure unadulterated, the writer's story. So, I mean, back to your question, though. <laughs> I'm going off on the tangent. I'm sorry. With the, with the pricing, I went with Amazon's suggestion for the second book. I did my own thing for the first book. I prayed and I said, okay, $6.99. We'll just leave it at that. But really, self-publishing is more so to get it out there and make it available, not necessarily for money. Not for me, not at the moment. And, and the good thing about getting your work out there, if you know you put your best into it, it's it's there. And sure, it's you know you may not make money, or you may not get a lot of clicks on it. But you know we've seen from books to films to music that sometimes it takes years and someone might come along and say hey you know what i just read this or i saw this let's see if this could become a new series i mean we keep hearing about how hollywood uh wants more content and even though a lot of times people like to go and remake something that can only go so far eventually you need to make something new and i think that you know, if having your work out there, even if it's not going to do a lot right now, you never know. If you keep on grinding, someone may see you and, and end up picking you up, which um, just tell us about the world uh, that you built for uh, the Order of the Slayer series um, so that people get an idea of like that universe. Because for me, I love universe building. Like I, I love the idea that this is a world that is created. So tell us about the world that you created. Well, there's there's more than one world, believe it or not, within that series. So in the first book called The Guardian, I give you a glimpse into the angelic world because the angelic world operates simultaneously with our world in a spiritual realm. And it kind of goes hand in hand with the Order of the Slayers without giving too much away because... I'm only on my second book out of 10, and I'm piecing out information <laughs> into the world. But I can tell you, the world of the angels, which is what we read about with Sean, is that there's a hierarchy, you've got rules, you know, Sean breaks half of them as a guardian, you know, but that's part of the fun. Um, but there's, I wanted the audience to understand the an the angels and the angelic world and then I gave them a glimpse of the Order of the Slayers. In the second book you're going to get a little bit more of a glimpse into the Order of the Slayers and, and the regional leaders. So in the Order 
it's basically a secret organization, a secret society of wealthy, well-to-do people. Kind of like a, um, it's a second sons type organization where you came from a wealthy family and you were the spare because you know you have the heir and the spare. So the second sons, which was the spare, they needed something to do to prove their worth to their family. So the family would send them to Slayer Academy. The way it works is when you're between the ages of 8 and 10 years old, you are sent to the Slayer Academy. You learn all the basics of learning, reading, writing, arithmetic, history, all the stuff people learn in primary school. But then you also learn how to fight and defend yourselves and basically kill off demons. So you spend 10 years in Slayer Academy. Once you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you finish Slayer Academy, and then you're given a contract to be in what's called a Slayer House. The Slayer House is the actual Slayers. And they are the ones that go out, they patrol the region or whatever city they're in, and they're the ones that kill off the demons, the werewolves, um, the witches, the vampires. I can't go too much into all of the demons because there's, as we go along in the books, I'm going to introduce other types of demons. And so the Slayers serve in the Slayer House for 10 years. In the Slayer House, it's usually about 5 to 10 Slayers and one chosen one, which is like the leader of the Slayers in the house. That person is like a liaison between the Slayers and the regional leader who's in charge of the entire region. So the Order of the Slayers is sectioned off by region. You have north, south, east, west. Um, and that person is in charge of their region. So in book two, we explore the north region. The headquarters of the north, re north region is in London. But they basically take care of all of the north part of the world. And the Slayers, basically, you have Slayer houses in other cities. So we're dealing with the Slayer house and the people who live in London in book two. But of course, there's Slayer houses in other cities. Um, and then, so when a Slayer finishes their 10-year contract, they're released. You do whatever you want to do. Some people decide to stay in the order and do other things within the order other people because they come from money they'll sometimes inherit whatever their inheritance is money a position in their parents company something like that so that's part of the world of the order of the slayers but the order of the slayers the way it is now is not how it was originally started and without going too much into it because i would be giving away other books it's really there to protect what they call the innocent. The innocent is just regular human beings who don't realize that vampires and werewolves exist. And they're not supposed to know that because the whole point of the Slayers is to deal with the vampires, the witches, the werewolves, all of those people to protect the innocent so that they can live their lives without worrying about these supernatural demons. So yeah, that's, that's the order. And then of course, because a lot of the people come from wealth and it's considered prestigious to serve the order for your family. There's a lot of intrigue and power that 
occurred over the years, over centuries, really, because the Order of the Slayers was started a thousand years before Christ. So it's been around for a long time, and it's governed by what's called a High Council. Now, in the second book, you get a really, really quick glimpse of the High Council, and you maybe understand a little bit of what the High Council is. The High Council, High Council is a secret part of an already secret organization. In book two, though, it doesn't seem very secret because high society is aware of the Order of Slayers. So it's kind of like, if you wanted to put it to modern day things, it's like the Masons or a Skull and Bold Society, but they combat demons, if you will. Now, we already have the action. We already have the supernatural. We have an expansive world. What about the love story? Uh, I didn't originally want to do romance because I felt like I felt like I would be selling out a little bit to do romance. So that's why in book one there's not a lot of romance. It's a lot of unrequited love and longing, but not a lot of romance. And then in book two, I just threw that out of the window. And yeah, so each book you will meet two people who fall in love. Not always the people you think. So I've had a couple books, uh, book two actually, I make the readers think that Charles and Elizabeth are going to get together, and then it's like, nope, here comes Vincent. So I I like to do things that are a little un- unexpected, because I think when you always write the expected, it's boring. But the love stories are there, and then part of the love stories that I do is when you have, so the reason why I brought up the angelic world is because there's a such thing as an angel-human hybrid in my world. And when you are descendant from an angel, you already have gifts. If you're a second or third, sorry, first or second generation hybrid, you have the ability to transfer your ability to your soulmate and what's called a bonding process. So you have bonded mates in my world. In book two, you'll find that two people, they have sex, and right as they have sex, they bond. And now all of a sudden, the person who had things like telekinesis, teleportation, and telepathy, they now have it with their mate. And their mate now has telekinesis, telepathy, teleportation, and they now have angelic blood running through their veins. And creating that first I thought, I do this one time, it's not going to be a big deal, but then I was like, no, no, this is good. And then I, I added into the story and make it so that it flows, just two people fall in love, have sex, the traditional thing. It's like, no, once these two people share their gifts, and now they have gifts, it works for the end of the story because there's something that needs to be done, and in order for it to be done, you need two people. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, the love in there though I like to do even though it's supernatural and it is fantasy I like to inject realness into the stories as much as I can because I feel like in order to have a real story it needs to be real for lack of a better term because a lot of stories there's these unrealistic things that happen I look at um 
Fifty Shades of Grey. And to me, it's an unrealistic story. It's this worldly man who's a billionaire, and he falls in love with a plain Jane girl who has no personality. And it's like, what's he really in love? He's in love with her because she has no personality? It doesn't make any sense to me. So I like to inject realism into it. Um, in this, in Civil War, which is book two, Elizabeth is somebody who has finally escaped being a slave for 25 years. She's not unscathed. She has her own mental instabilities because of that. And I love the fact that even though she's a very strong, she's one of my favorite characters, by the way. She's a very strong character, very resilient character. But she has the ability to finally fall apart. There's a scene in the book where she falls apart with Vincent. And I cried and I thought it was a very beautiful scene because we as women, especially black women, we're built strong and we're told to be strong because we had to be strong. But no one tells us it's okay to have a moment to fall apart and then pick yourself back up. Nobody tells you that. So I felt like it needed to be in there that such a strong character has her moment. And Elspeth, who is the villain of this book, the villain of Civil War book two, she also has a moment where she falls apart. But her moment of falling apart is starkly different from Elizabeth. And just the fact that the two women fall apart in totally different ways, but they're both strong women. Elizabeth falls apart in the arms of her lover. Elspeth, when she falls apart, she goes in her room, locks the door, falls apart on the floor, figures out how to fix whatever she's broken, smooths her hair back, smooths down her, her business suit, her, her dress suit, walks back out like nothing happened. And I just, I wanted book two to be more about female empowerment and the romance of it, which is why it's a small part. Um, in the coming books, romance will play a bigger role. Um, book three, which is called The Faction, will be out in March of next year. And we'll get to revisit Tamara Sims from book one, as well as Sean Davis from book one as well. Now, for people who are coming into this for the first time, would you suggest that they start with The Gate, or would, should they go just directly into The Guardian? Um, it would be nice if they started with The Gate, because The Gate gives you a breakdown of all the angelic hierarchies. You've got um, part of the hierarchy of angels, to give you a quick blurb, you've got the guardians, you've got warrior angels, you've got the six wings, dream angels, death angels, you got the lay angels that just hang out, then you got the angels at the gate. And I liked the gate because the original reason why I wrote the gate was because we as Christians, I say we as, you know, whoever identifies as Christian, you believe in God, even as a Jewish person. We always feel like we know who's going to hell and who's going to heaven. We just we just know it. You know, no one's going to tell us different. We just know that one's going to hell and this one's going to heaven. And I wanted to break down what it truly means to have lived a good life. It's not necessarily saying, well, he's gay, so he's definitely going to hell. You don't know that. You can't say that. So you can read the gate, but if you don't read the gate, it's fine. But you really should read The Guardian if you're going to start the series. You really should. Otherwise, you're going to be like, wait, who's Elizabeth? Why does she matter? 
What's so, the big deal? In order, so altogether, there's going to be ten books in the series. How long do you look to have uh, time-wise between books? Well, I've, at this point, I've been spacing them out by six months. And to actually, there's an asterisk to the ten books. There's another novella that I've already written that's going to be in between book five and six, um, called Chris. Chris, at the moment, right now, people know Chris, Christiana Cadane or Christiana Gainsmith as the chosen one in the western region for the order of the slayers and she's a strong character and i wanted to kind of go back in history to show people who she was and how she came to be who she is now um but yeah every six months so it's looking like march and september are going to be the times where you're going to get a new book and since i've got about really 11 and well, I should say 10 novels and one more prequel, or, sorry, novella. It's going to be a while. And plus, I'm actually working on book 11 of the series, so it's going to be a couple of years. Be a couple of years. Hey, the good news is that fans know that, you know, you have all this set up, so it's not something where they get involved and all of a sudden they don't get to see it. So, I mean, that that's a good way to go in. It's not like some of these TV shows where you end up getting into it and it gets canceled, because that sucks. Yeah, that does suck so bad. <laughs> so, right now... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. You can imagine, um, I... When I started this, I didn't think I was going to have 10 books. And to just be at the point where I'm researching book 11 is amazing but at the same time i really want people to enjoy it i want people to read it and tell me what they think if you like it tell me if you hate it tell me that too i just but i do i i want people to enjoy it and i want people to see themselves and i want people to read it and think you know what i'm going through this and it's similar to what the character is going through but i can get through it that type of thing that's my little thing. So they can find your books on Amazon, and they can get it not only in the Kindle edition, but as uh, paperback as well, which is really nice. Correct. Yes, yes, yes. That is so nice. It, it feels good to hold the book in your hand. I'm old school. I like the smell of books for some reason. So I like having a book in my hand and flipping the page. Well, we will definitely put those links up on our page as well as on our social media so that people can find it. Uh, but I really want to thank you, uh, Kay, for coming and talking to us today. Thank you. This is good. <laughs>